And we're live on the Commercial Real Estate Playbook. Frank, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, John. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Excited for our guest, Mr. Sam Rosati. How are you doing this morning, Sam? What's up, gentlemen? Good to see you both. Uh, today's going to be a good convo. Uh, we're going a little bit away from real estate and talking about the SMB community, the small, medium business community. Uh, I think there's a lot of carryover, especially for veterans. There's a lot of our uh, veterans in our audience. So I, I think it's going to be a really good combo. So Sam, who are you and uh, what is Pursuant Capital? Well, thanks, John. I am Sam. I'm located here in Tampa, kind of home, been here forever. And uh, former CPA, recovering, although still licensed lawyer, turned entrepreneur and business owner operator. So the the path was winding, still feels winding, but long story short, I today acquire and operate small companies, mostly in Florida, some outside. And then I also advise and invest in searchers. Guys who want to buy guys and gals who want to buy small companies and run them as entrepreneurs. When you say companies, can you give us some examples of types of companies that are in your portfolio or that you're actively searching for? Sure. Yeah. So our criteria start there is headquartered in Florida that it has between a half a million dollars and three million dollars of annual cash flow or EBITDA, the fancy term everybody uses in our world. And we're fairly industry agnostic, kind of a preference for old old economy, blue collar service companies, mostly because there's a lot of improvements you can make generally pretty easily. You can buy them at a fair price. Uh, the best way to describe it is just to say what we own. So we're in businesses like commercial fence installation. Uh, Pond and lake management, residential and commercial HVAC. Um, we are in cargo trailer manufacturing. We're in apartment complex lighting and plumbing. So just simple old school stuff in Florida. That's that's beautiful. That sounds about as boring as our self storage investments, which uh, I I love. Right? Uh, why old economy? Right? Why old economy? And then what are those main levers that you feel like you can pull in those businesses? Good question. And I don't know if I really ever set out to do that. So a lot of this is like uh, the Mike Tyson thing. Everybody's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. And so when I was first searching with my brother a while ago now, I think we got punched in the mouth a bunch on valuation and just, you know, kept bidding too, too low, too low, too low. And then finally, the things that the, the offers that stuck that we got under LOI, letter of intent, were these old school service companies. Like the first two we bought, one was a, a roll-off dumpster rental business. About as old school blue collar as you can get. And we just realized, hey, you know, we can actually understand these businesses. We can get them for a fair price. They look like high-ish quality. So that's where we started. Um, second question, improvements. I would say there are just limitless improvements, especially if they're owner-centric. If, if the owner is involved in the business and he or she is you know, 60s, 70s, 
which that's that's been a lot of what we've done you know they're just they're out of touch on technology they're out of touch on negotiating their vendors they're out of touch on digital marketing they're out of touch on a lot of stuff that's not to say they don't know what they're doing because we've gotten punched in the face there a bunch but there are just a lot of low-hanging fruit so yeah, it's like the there's a phrase like if you see your seller having a fax machine in their office, buy the business, um, like <laughs> something like that. I think it's storage. There's a lot of similarities there on the property management side. But um, going back to valuation, what are these businesses typically valued at? Like, what multiple does a fencing installation company typically trade at at acquisition? So the the term EBITDA is a proxy for annual profit. So let's use that. And in our world, as opposed to your crazy world, three to five times on a blue collar services business in the size range we're looking for is the price that we pay. I, I don't think I've ever bought anything cheaper than three times. And I don't think I've ever paid more than five and five and change times EBITDA, which, you know, for those, for those vets out there that are listening, if you essentially you know, take EBITDA or the multiple of EBITDA and you flip it, that's a cap rate, right? And so we're paying three to five times, which is, you know, a humongous cap rate. 20 to 30 yeah. Right. Tiny ass cap rates. So I'll ask you boys, why are you paying such low cap rates? I, I think the answer to low hey, cap rates. This is our or... pod, Sam. This is not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're, uh, we've, we've talked about this before, but I, I think uh, it goes back to if Frank and I are idiots and we mi completely mismanage a storage facility, it still has a value, right? Like the, the value is, is still there where in a uh, business installing fences, if you have the wrong leader in place, there's a decent chance that it goes to zero. So I, I think it's the uh, underlying risk of those investments. And I've had and continue to have experiences just like that, where the business and the cash flow is generating goes sideways and i think it's more common you've got essentially no collateral and that is the risk or said another way smb small businesses they are massively operationally intensive and that's why you can buy them cheaper and man is that an opportunity yeah so if you could provide some scale i would also add in the tax i don't know the tax efficiency as well as you do for SMB, but real estate just just has some of those tax advantages. I don't know how to compare those two, but I would imagine real estate is probably the most tax efficient way to deploy capital. So I think that plays a part in that as well. Agree. Your game is better than mine in that front. Frank and I often look at the deal machine as finding deals, funding deals, and finishing deals. And it seems like at any given point, one of them is is harder than the other. Right now, I think. Uh, funding is a challenge because interest rates are so high, but we don't really look at funding as the problem right now. We look at finding, right? Because finding deals have to reflect the underwriting of that high interest rate. As you think of your space right now, Sam, finding, funding, finishing, talk to me about each of them and which one's the hardest right now. Oh man, great, great question. By the way, I have like a similar framework. Mine's like the three-legged stool. Mine's deals, money, and operator. That's that's, dude, like that's the exact a hell of a, that's a hell of a t-shirt, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that that is, dude. You, you got to copyright that. That is nice. Yeah, like exactly. Like All right, so 
what's crazy is a year ago, like quite literally one year ago, money felt like it was free and limitless. And I don't know what your finishing means, but let's assume it means operating it. The operator piece for us was certainly a bottleneck, but we work with searchers. I'm sure we'll go into that, right? Our boot camp, And so that we had a funnel for, and it was pretty good. By far a year ago, the hardest thing to get a hold of was businesses that you could buy at a fair price. And so finding, I, I, frankly, I think in both of our games, your pipeline, your your funnel of opportunities, whether it be SMBs or real estate, is the name of the game. It is the bottleneck because I still believe in today's world, like interest rates are crushing us. Most of the buyers in our world use SBA loans especially veteran searchers. And those rates are now 10%. They were low fives a year ago. So so you can still access capital just as easily, in my opinion, in my world, but it is far more expensive. By far, the hardest thing is still the deals at a fair price. Hmm. That, that, that is interesting. So 10% interest. So like how levered do you go in on these deals? Like what was like if you were going in at 80% last year, because SBA, you could jack it up to almost 90, I think, because the highest LTV they they were doing. So I'm imagining yeah. people did that. They were like, screw it, you know, money machines, printing, 90% LTV. So like, what does that look like now compared to a year ago? Yeah, you can still do it. So the SBA in my world is willing to lever 90% of project costs, which is essentially your purchase price plus all your transaction costs. So you can lever it to the hill. And the only limitation is DSCR, your debt service coverage ratio. And depending on the bank, it's you know somewhere in the low ones, which means you can lever your deal so that almost all of your annual cash flow has to go to debt service. And that's that's pretty scary. So I'm not a huge fan of 90% LTV deals because they're too highly levered. There's not a lot of margin for error. But in in SMB, most of the searchers, most of the the people who want to become entrepreneurs, they want to own and operate, they're doing this to have equity. And it is also true that the more debt you use on a deal, the less equity you raise, the more you can own. And so there's definitely that tension where a searcher will come to us and say, hey, I want to lever to the hill because it means I get to, quote, keep 80 or 70 percent of the equity without having to put in a lot of my own dollars. And, you know, in today's world, you better think twice. I'd rather have less ownership of something that's still alive and it's got a lot of breathing room than the other way around. And would you also think a lot of investors wouldn't want that? Like in this environment, like we have a little recession risk. It is a small business, right? Like there, some could argue it's that industry is really sensitive to the refinance market going down and all this other stuff. If you're in like the, especially around housing, like house services, like fencing. Or, and then investors also probably have less control, I would imagine, depending on how the deal is set up. So it's, if someone shows a 90% LTV deal on a 1.25 DCR today, is that money getting raised effectively or is it, is it or are investors kind of like, I don't want to do that anymore? It's a good question. So I'm not a high volume, like I don't raise equity for anybody and I'm just an investor in search deals. Got it. So I don't actually know how much harder it is. 
but I would guess it is harder, right? People have just psychologically pulled back. Uh, and so I, at the same time, I do think that people like leverage transactions because their money goes further. And, and, you know, some people probably play the spray and pray approach on their investments. I, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a different world, man. And, you know, there's this, I would say, I'll, I'll go ahead and call it crazy, but there's a, a lot of bullshit getting pushed around Twitter and the internet about leverage to the max. And in our world, you can, you know, put loans on full standby to juice them even more. And all this, you know, seller notes counting as equity, which all this stuff to allow deals to get further and further juiced, more leverage. It just seems like the wrong time for that. Yeah, that's uh, I, that can be scary. Let's let's talk about a full cycle. I've heard you talk on other podcasts about your dumpster business, and uh, seemed like you know you were uh, excited about this space, and then that seemed like an awesome win for you and your brother, and and kept you in it. Can you talk through how that deal went? Sure. Well, it was my first venture as an entrepreneur, as a business owner and operator. It was not his first, my brother's first uh, foray into entrepreneurship. So for me, it was like a big change. I went from being a fancy lawyer in a fancy office building to running a small, I mean, it was a small four to $5 million revenue company, dumpster rental business, where instead of interacting with you know fancy folks as a lawyer, I was interacting with homeowners and construction companies. And so it was definitely like a big psychological move. I think the deal itself was a good one for us. We got it at a fair price with a bunch of structure, you know, seller note, earn out. So there was less risk. You know, I think it was still hard and like just not to bury the lead. Yeah, it was a good outcome, but I still have to work. You know, I still have to go to, to work every day. It, it's not like I was able to cash out and retire by any means of the imagination. And we can go into all the details. Like, you know, what was it like to run a team? What was it like to have a first bank loan? What was it like to have to replace it two owners who were active in the business? We could talk about that for three hours. But long story short, like <clears throat> the best thing it was, was my first rep. And you can't buy multiple small businesses until you buy your first. And frankly, I don't think you can be an investor in anything unless you're an operator first. So it was like the best experience for that because it was trial by fire in every respect. What were a couple of those things that you were like, I love this? And what were a couple of those things that you were like, damn, this this sucks? Yeah, let's talk about like everybody talks about the glamorous stuff. So I'll talk about the shit. I think man, if you're if you're buying a small business, unlike real estate, you are signing up to manage people. And people are unpredictable, they're emotional, they are they are the hardest part about running a small business. And and so if you want to go become an entrepreneur but you don't want to manage people day to day, go buy real estate. So that was probably the hardest thing for me. I was used to being a lawyer and then I morphed into being a people manager and that was an awakening. Another thing for us was we we probably broke the don't break it rule early on 
we decided to go in and make some changes and one in particular kind of sort of slapped us in the face and we got it fixed and figured out but like all the things you hear about all the rules of thumb in buying a small business learning those firsthand was more painful than i thought <laughs> which probably goes back to why the rules of thumb uh what else so that's probably the hard stuff you know there was a bunch of good stuff too like learning how to manage people is a skill i got to learn how to manage the financials of a small business and here i was like a cpa and i did not know a damn thing about small business financials it's kind of sad actually so i don't know tons of pros we can go into those too if you want that's also an interesting story because you know you had cpa experience you were a lawyer and you're pivoting, you're changing your your strategy for your, essentially your whole career under probably a lot of stress, I would imagine. And you're working with your brother, which anyone who's had a brother knows they can be a challenge, right? Like you're going to fight with your brother. It is what it is. So how how did that impact your relationship, if at all? A hundred percent. So, and I get this question a fair bit now about the family thing. And look, working, the good news is, is like, no matter what, I would hope, no matter what, a complete breakdown of the relationship, no matter what, you probably have more trust in somebody that's your blood than somebody that's not. And so I think that's true. And it's ultimately a pro. I think the same thing applies too. like you are at home, like I'm more open and emotional with family than I would ever be with you psychos or you know somebody that's non-blood and so what i always say about family and business is there is the potential for it to be far better and far worse because you're just going to be more open and emotional and all this personal all that stuff so we got the full spectrum now when we when we did this we actually bought two businesses a month apart so for the first six months we didn't really work together day to day because he was kind of running the dumpster company. I was kind of at the other manufacturing business. And so we were big time divide and conquer. And that was a huge pro. Like he's much better at operations and people and all that stuff. I'm much better sitting in front of a computer and a spreadsheet. So that was great. We definitely had disagreements. We definitely had times especially towards the end because it got to be high stress especially towards figuring out like what are we doing big picture where it was tough and i don't know i i've tried to to look back and say like what what helped or what worked well that we could repeat our dad kind of helped us a lot maybe that was a secret um but not everybody has that benefit so anyway how do these things go bad, right? Like what, you know, you, you see enough deals, you see people going in like super motivated, ready to crush it. They're going to double revenue. You know, they're, they're going to exit. They're going to, you know, right off into the sunset. But uh, we all know that doesn't always happen. What, what are those, you know, three to five things that people get wrong that blows up the deal? Good question. So just my, just from my, my vantage point, right? The searcher deals and the deals we own and operate, it's a revenue problem where these things go bad. When it becomes a cost problem, I tend to think that's easier to manage. And I've only really seen that once. It's always the revenue problem. And insofar as revenue is a problem, it means 
there was customer concentration and the customer left, or the revenue was tied to the owner's relationship and the owner left. The one I'm seeing a little bit recently is actually our generation, like we are not salespeople. And in a way, like being a salesperson is like a derogatory term in our generation, which I think is asinine because so many of these small businesses are just built on the sales skill of the owner. And so I think I've seen a fair number of new CEOs come in and not really want to engage in the sales function, not want to get on the phone with customers to go out in the field. And you know, maybe my biggest piece of advice right now to new CEOs is when you get in the driver's seat, go out in the field or whatever the field means in your in your business and talk to your customer. Learn the sales process because if things are going to go bad, it's going to be because revenue goes down and you're going to need to know how to go improve revenue. Yeah. Is um is digital marketing typically an opportunity that's present in these businesses as well? So like you want to share some insight on what you've learned on that end? Yeah. Yeah. Again, so very lucky. The dumpster company, even though it was a old school business, was was just a broker of dumpster rentals. And so it was it was a digital marketing business. And I went from knowing like less than nothing about digital marketing to something. And that has definitely carried over. So now like these things, SEO, web dev, PPC, all of these sort of uh hard to understand concepts are easier for me to understand and repeat in these blue collar service businesses they're all undermanaged from a digital marketing perspective all of them that is the opportunity to grow sales so to to the populations that i hear from often are one is the the west point grad that does their five years in the army wants to get out and wants to uh go buy a small medium business. Let's call that person, you know, like, you know, 27, 28 years old, super motivated, super bright, ready to rock it. And then the other person, it's probably like the uh, non-commissioned officer that was definitely smart enough to go to college, but joined the army right after high school, um, had a great career as a non-commissioned officer in the army, but they're like ready to go prove the world that, that they can do this. Can you just talk kind of like the logistics of if someone has that motivation and maybe they're, you know, looking at options, how might they end up starting down this path? And then what would those steps be to go, okay, I now own this business and I get to drive it. Right. So everybody wants to overcomplicate the process about buying a small business. And at the end of the day, I, I always say, if you can find a small business and make an offer on it, for a fair price and get that accepted. All of the resources, the cavalry is coming to help entrepreneurs like this, which means sort of the deal team, right? Lawyers, accountants, insurance agents, like all those people will come to support a military veteran wanting to buy a small business once they found a deal. And so too will the money, the money, the bank loan, the equity, those things are going to follow too. So the most important thing for somebody that wants to come out of the military and buy a small business is to start searching and not over-engineer the whole process. Starting a search is just not that hard. You can create a website, form an LLC in your state, 
make an email address and you are a self-funded searcher. Like that is it. And in a half a day after you do that, you can go find a list of business brokers who in our world are the gatekeepers to deals. And so I always say, uh, we run these boot camps. We can talk about that. On Friday afternoon, when we always wrap up our boot camps, I say, if you are not searching by Monday morning, it's because you don't actually want to do the work to search because it just ain't that hard. By Monday morning, you can have all of those things up and running and you can be sending emails and cold calling brokers to get reps at seeing deals. So it's really simple. And that is all you need. Yeah, it's it's real estate's very sim, sim, similar. It's like, how do you get started? Start looking for deals. Talk to brokers. If brokers don't work, do direct to seller marketing. That's it. But, like Frank, that, but Frank, what CRM should I use? Or you know, what account so, software should I should I use to track my accounting of my search? Or what color should my logo be? Dude, we I've been there. It's the same exact questions we get too. It actually brings up another point because SMB similar to real estate. Last five years has seen a lot of more interested people getting involved. Like SMP, SMB is very in vogue right now. I got a former investment banker buddy that's in the SMB space. I have a buddy, West Pointer, that left McKinsey Consulting to work to do HVAC roll-ups, right? We left our jobs similar, but not exactly the same. Um, so what personality traits make a good searcher? And then we could talk about what personality traits make a bad one. Let's differentiate searcher from operator because I want to support the best operators. I can help people search. I can help them buy a business, but it's, it's a quality operator that makes the difference. Just so happens that damn good operators also tend to be damn good searchers. But like, I've got a friend of mine who, who says, uh, embrace the suck. Like that's his philosophy on life. And so uh, grittiness, for sure, just sort of no matter what is pushing forward, doing the things that everybody else wants to do, you know, um, an analogy being we joked about the color of a search logo. Nobody gives a shit. It should not matter. So the, the kind of person that realizes that worrying about the color of their logo is just an excuse to not do the hard things, which are picking up the phone and cold calling and sending emails to people and getting rejected. So it's the gritty operators with urgency. They don't wait. They just go. Those are the people that are successful, in my opinion. You also don't risk, um, when you're working on your own logo, Like you don't risk pissing anybody else off. Like So much of our work is like, you have, you're risking making someone angry, you know, <laughs> like honestly, like raising prices pisses off a customer, cold calling someone pisses off the person answering the phone. Like that's, to me, that's like one of the things that has to be overcome no matter where oh, you go. A storage owner, like, you know, a million dollars less than they thought they were going to get pisses them off. Yeah. You're, we're basically just pissing people off for a living. Exactly. If you look at it in a, in a negative way, it's, it's weird. Exactly. So is, is this, is this window closing? Right. The reason I, I say that is 
being in our space over the last two years, mm-hmm. when you first get into a space, you look at the market and you're like, this is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. Right. But then you see prices change. You see interest rates change. You see, you know, a ton of new brokers hit the market. So all of a sudden it seems like every owner's already been contacted by someone else. So it's this evolving market that you have to stay on top of. Do you think this opportunity to buy mom and pop businesses that aren't doing digital marketing? Do you think that window is closing or how do you, how do you think about that? No, I don't. Absolutely not. I mean, there's a bunch of stats out there. You know, there's a lot of people out there sort of sharing information around the volume of small companies owned by, you know, retiring baby boomer types that have to transition in some way or close. So the, the volume there is just so incredible that the opportunity is not going to go away. And it might change, right? The cost of capital just went to the freaking moon. So the opportunity set has changed. You can't lever it to the hilt the way you could a little while ago. Or in many cases, if we get a recession and P&Ls start to deteriorate, businesses are less profitable, that's going to make it harder too. And likely there's going to be a huge swath of that, that, that group of small businesses that are going to either go out of business or are going to shrink to the point where they're too small. Nevertheless, the opportunity set just too big for it to go away. And and what is the role of the broker in that chain, right? In commercial real estate, you know, the, the majority, I don't know what the number is, but the majority of deals are trading through brokers. You you follow the broker incentive, you can you can understand how it all works, right? How do how do brokers uh play into your world? Yeah, I think their primary role is to make our lives harder. (laughs) (laughs) Very good, very good. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time to like wait to find a good reason. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. So I think it's just like we're in the same game, the three of us, different asset class, same game. Our job, ideally, as searchers is to front run the brokers, to try and get to the owners before they do. It's just really hard. I mean, those broker, we as, as buyers are, we actually have to make offers at prices we're willing to stand behind. Whereas brokers, when they cold call an owner, can give a half truth or maybe even just lie about the valuation because the broker just has to get that client, the business owner, the real estate owner signed up as a client. And then they can go figure out valuation. So I think that's the that's the sort of fundamental problem of, of the brokerage relationship. Um, on the flip side, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I talk to owners directly, even in, in industries I'm already an owner in, um, educating an owner on how to sell a business is in many cases a fool's errand. It's the longest sales cycle. It is fraught with distrust. And so even though I joke and we joke about brokers and how hard they make our lives, they do have a role here. They, they do sort of in many ways force a seller to the, to the table. They can align interests. That seller wants to sell. That broker wants to get paid. And I want to buy. It kind of brings this all to the middle in some ways. So yeah. there's a role to play. Hey, real quick, for the veteran searcher, who's out there reading all of the search fund materials about how they should never work through brokers. I disagree. 
I, I agree with that as well. I think brokers are a party that's a neutral party or supposed to be somewhat neutral once you're under contract that like keeps everyone's interest aligned. Buyers don't want to piss off the broker because they might have to work with them in the future. Sellers kind of feel similar in a lot of ways. And you just got one other person there that's that really is highly motivated to get the deal done. It just takes so much fragility out of transaction coordination, like contract to close. And keeps sometimes, you know, keeps retrading to a minimum too. It's it is good in some ways for sure. It's a tool. If you know how to use it, it can be a tool. Let me ask you boys of the forget your single family stuff for this. How many of your storage facilities have you bought through brokers versus direct? I think we bought one direct, all the rest have been through brokers. And we have had someone work in 40 hours a week uh, off-market deals for almost a year. And we got tons of leads in the system, but closed deals, I, I think it's one out of 12 or something. Very, very difficult, right? And like you say, so many of these owner conversations start out beautiful, right? Like we're like, dude, this is gonna be this is gonna be the best deal ever, right? Uh, but it's it's so easy for those direct to seller leads to just somehow flake out, change their mind, ghost us. Well, it's tough. The other challenge for storage in particular is there's just a smaller number of storage facilities in the United States. Like there's fifty thousand of them uh, across the country, give or take a little bit. There's more small businesses than that. So John's been working an off market deal through a direct mail campaign, there, there's two other buyers talking to them. Like even in the off-market space, you're rarely the single bid, unless you're trying to buy a dog in the middle of Gary, Indiana, just like something you don't want. Any Anything that people want, even if you're doing direct seller marketing, you're not the only bid. And if you think you're the only bid, you're not. You just you simply, you probably aren't. It's very competitive. I agree, 100%, 100%. So, so what does pursuant capital do, right? Um, we'll get into the boot camps, but how how do you make money? How how do you look at your business? What is it today, and where's it going in the future? Yep. So I try and keep it very simple by saying, pursuant capital is in, at its core a a search fund vehicle that morphed into a holding company. It was the search entity my brother and I set up to try and acquire one business. And then we bought two. And so it has just turned into now a holding company of both active business ownership interests, the fence company, the HVAC business, the pond management company, those things that I'm active in. I have what feels like a day job there, even though I don't. And then the other division, if you want to call it a pursuant, is to invest in searchers where I am purely passive. And so in that side of my day-to-day, I have no role in those businesses whatsoever. All I am is an investor in those businesses. And those are nationwide investments in searchers like the veterans you're trying to speak to right now. Very good. And then through that process, you decided to create the boot camp, which uh, is now, you know, one, one of the commercials, uh, one of one of the supporters of this podcast. I thought it was good to uh, to help our synergy, synergy here in Tampa. And also, when I first heard about it, I was like, man, I, I got to get all my buddies going to this thing. So I, I truly believe in, in what you're doing. But can you can you talk through what the boot camp is, who the audience is, and, and kind of what those outputs are? Yeah. So I'll just quick story the. One of the businesses that we 
you know, call it bought, but really we just partnered with a self-funded searcher who's a military veteran from Texas, but who now lives here in Tampa Bay. Him and I had a really incredible search partnership that's turned into a really incredible business ownership partnership. And he was, uh, he is and was very clear to me, a great operator and a great person. So that's the kind of sort of dynamic I wanted more of. I wanted to be able to sort of advise on the deal side. I, I have a lot of reps searching, negotiating deals, executing the transaction, maybe even being helpful in a transition, but in pursuing, I don't want to have a day job in that business. I want the searcher to run that business and for it to be a relatively passive investment for pursuing. So in that dynamic, I was able to teach him a lot about the deal and then we closed and it handed off. And I said, gosh, that works really well. I want to do more of that. So I actually, this is almost a couple of years ago now, I was sitting in my old office and I, I invited a few friends to come in because I got the question all the time, how do you buy a business? And I would spend all this time on phone calls and Zoom calls and and all this stuff. And I said, I, I can't do that anymore. I'm into the office and I will bring in my deal team and we will spend a couple of days and I'll just teach everything I know. And it just morphed into a three-day crash course on everything I know about searching, finding the business, and what you have to do to get to closing. And that's what the bootcamp is. It's, it's not flashy. It is just sort of the core nuts and bolts for people that know nothing about search and M&A on how to buy a small company. John, uh, I actually want you to answer a question. Before we started the pod, you said you were thinking about Sam and his business. And you said, I think for young vets, like if I was going back to when I was 28 years old, I would probably go SMB versus starting a real estate company. And you, you've actually been in both both of those types of businesses. Um, why? Like, why'd you say that? <clears throat> well, I, I think that the biggest thing is veterans transitioning out need to replace an income, right? Like they, they got to figure out how to put food on the table. You know, many of them have a family to support as well. That's even, even more pressure, right? And the business we're doing commercial real estate, syndicating deals, raising funds, like almost guaranteed to, to make us lots of money in the long term. In the short term, it is very difficult to make money. Where a lot of these SMBs, some people might say, hey, you're buying yourself a job, but you're you're buying yourself potentially a job that's going to pay you good in the short term. And if you're able to excel, there's no ceiling and you're able to, you know, double, triple the value of that business. What what do you think, Sam? My my on par there, or what what recommendation would you give this this population? It's a hundred percent spot on. I mean, for that re- that retiring or exiting military vet, like if they can't survive in the short term, they won't live long enough financially to get to the long term payout on their equity. So, like, what's the point in owning ninety percent of a small business if you can't get to that five or ten year runway where it actually pays out? You got to make money in the interim without a second job. And that's why SMB works is because in every SMB, there is a primary manager, call them whatever you want, a president, a CEO, a chief cook and bottle washer. It doesn't matter. That role exists and that role is compensated. It shouldn't make that person rich, but it will allow them to support a family 
while they build the value of the equity. That's what makes SMB feasible. Yeah. One thing I, I want to mention that I think is distinct from real estate or different than real estate is how much valuation arbitrage there is as you scale your company. Um, like you buy at a 3X and you could take it to somewhere else. Can you talk through like how you look at that as part of your strategy? Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely part of the strategy that we have more so in the active businesses that we're owning and running. As far as the passive ones, the searchers, I mean, that's up to them. Right. If they want to go do the buy and the build. But your point is, that in SMB, it's just easier to grow your profit. So, you know, in real estate, your your NOI your and rents are sort of fixed in a way. There's like only so much space and only so much rent, you know, demand. In SMB, you can quite literally, you know, expand to a new city, expand to a new state, buy a competing business. And so you can buy at one lesser multiple and grow your earnings, your profit, and sell at a higher multiple, that arbitrage is the, the potential for an enormous financial outcome. That's why we're all playing the game. Hey, can I offer one more thing? You guys have not hit on this, but the military has like the skill bridge program that I don't know a ton about, but I'm trying to, because it can be a way for vets to literally bridge like the period of time where they're learning to what they're going to do when they get out to when they actually have an opportunity. I'm trying to figure out how to use that to, to sort of get veterans paid while performing a search. Cause I think it would de-risk that transition. I don't know. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. I, I, I just transitioned out of the military um, last year and I did 180 days of skill bridge with a um, uh, real estate brokerage in Tampa. It's a real easy program, Sam. I, I can help you get up to date on it, but it's uh, it's, a, it's an easy program for service members to get. I think almost every service member should get somewhere between 30 and 90 days. If they've got a good command, they should be able to get 180 days. Um, that That's what I got. So the army kept paying me for 180 days and I had full insurance and stuff uh, before I got out. It's, it's an amazing way to transition. And there's definitely ways, um, I, I think pretty easily to make that internship with Pursuant or, you know, some other entity that I, I think would be really easy to do and it would really help out some of these searchers. Cool. There's a couple searcher business owners in town that are also thinking about sort of being a sponsor because, you know, what a great way to sort of pay it forward while also having like, you know, essentially a sponsorship of a searcher. It's a great program. And they set it up. It's one of the few things I've seen in the Department of Defense that were set up correctly. It was set up to help service members land on their feet. So the the amount of red tape involved in the process is actually at a minimum. It's like, hey, do you feel good about this service member? Okay, we're going to sign off on it. And then it's going to be up to you to make sure that you do everything you say you're going to do. And the company's not taking advantage of you as opposed to everything else. Like, hey, we got to make sure the service member isn't taking advantage of the program. It's backwards. Right. It's making sure the companies aren't taking care of or taking advantage of service members. So it's pretty easy to set up and, and execute. It's it's a beautiful program. Cool. Hey, talk to me about Tampa, right? Um, I'm, I'm the hashtag long Tampa guy. Uh, I am not from here, moved here, uh, been here about a year, but I'm, I'm loving everything about it. I'm trying to tell more and more people to move here, to invest money in here. Uh, tell me about your connection to Tampa and uh, uh, help me sell it, man. 
<laughs> All right, let me put on my Tampa hat. So, look, we got lucky. Those of us from Tampa, we just got lucky because this has always been a good place to live. Great, great weather in the winter. You live here through a summer. It sucks in the summer. Let's be it's tough, man. It's like living in the rainforest. <laughs> but we've had a great run in sports. So anybody who cares about sports, like hockey, football, golf, like we have everything. Baseball is good, even though nobody goes. Sports are great. I think the we've got the water. That's a huge one. All these great reasons why Florida is a great place to live. It have, have become even better because it's now a great business place. So sort of like all the politics aside, Florida is growing. There, there is population influx. There is a business-friendly climate in Florida, especially Tampa. There's been investment by a lot of super wealthy folks to try and get this community built up. I mean, I can tell you the road. I used to live way out in the suburbs. And the road that went from my small armpit town of Tampa to the big city used to be a two-lane road. And now it's a six lane road. So like it is physically growing. It is financially growing. And so this is a great place to live, raise your family and build a business. Because think about it, you own a small business or you own a storage facility or a warehouse, like you need the economy to grow in order for you to do well. We are now that and a great place to live. By the way, Tom Brady retired. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I know that. Why, why do you say that? Because you have a box flag on your wall. Let's, and now let's we're go. very much in flux. <laughs> we're going to be just fine, right? We my my kids talk about it every day. Is it going to be Trask next year? Are we uh, we're going to get someone in free agency? Uh, I, I like the attitude of Baker Mayfield. Might not be the most accurate passer of all time, but uh, I, I think there's some exciting stuff there. Aaron Rodgers seems like he's going to be too expensive, um, but I don't know. Yeah. Should should be a fun season. Baker Mayfield was last in the NFL in points added per play last year. So I think if you're hitching your wagon to to Baker, it's gonna be it's a rough go. Oh yeah, and who do the, who do the Jets have? Tough guy. <laughs> he was the second worst actually. Zach Wilson. He was thirty first. <laughs> Get out of here, bro. <laughs> On the flip side, storage benefits for move outs. So hey, this is all good. There you go. There, it is good. Go, yeah, right? no doubt. Good stuff, yeah. Sam. Uh, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? And um, feel free to plug uh, whatever you want, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you guys know, we're our office is kind of right outside of downtown Tampa. We love like the in-person. Come over, have a coffee, have a beer, whatever. Uh, Twitter, don't even know what my handle is. So maybe you can post it in in the, the show notes. Uh, and then, you know, our website, pursuingcapital.com backslash bootcamp, if that's what you're trying to chase down. Awesome. Definitely. Uh, just want to double plug that. If, if you're transitioning uh, junior military officer, non-commissioned officer, uh, definitely check it out. I, you know, highly, highly recommend. All right, Frank, take us out, man. Uh, I want to thank Sam for coming on the podcast. Super interesting. And to bring in a new perspective, that's not just real estate and make us uh, allow us to do some comparisons. It was a lot of fun. Thanks everybody for listening. Peace.